This morning we uh, read Psalm 51 and we told briefly the story of uh, David and Bathsheba and the sin that took place there. And what I was hoping we could do tonight is actually turn our Bibles to that passage. It's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, the passage with David and Bathsheba and then Nathan. And look at it a little bit more in depth, actually reading through some of it and uh, discussing some of the things that we see there and and seeing um, what we can learn from it. We have a tendency sometimes, I don't think it's intentional, but it does happen. Um, it's happened throughout the history of the church, and sometimes we can slip into it also where tradition um, can shape our reading of Scripture. In fact, I'll, I'll say that happened to me this, this morning. Um, we'll, I guess, address it a little bit more here in a few minutes, but if we're making a confession uh, about misspeaking earlier today, I did that. Uh, I mentioned that Bathsheba was bathing on her roof. Um, and while it's possible she was bathing on her roof and maybe, I mean, he was on his roof, the text doesn't actually say she was bathing on her roof. It says that he was on his roof and he could see her bathing, but we're not told exactly where she is. Uh, and that's, that's, that's an interesting note. I mean, I think, uh, I think it's possible she was, but she may have been in her backyard. She may have been inside and he saw through a window. You know, we, we're just, that isn't described, but that's just one example of, ways where the way that you have quickly read through a story or heard a story a lot of times can shape the way that you immediately think about that story. And even if you read it again, you can read it with an image that you already have in your brain that you don't already know is there. You, don't even, you haven't even like consciously thought about it, and you just make it fit that image as you read through. Um, and so uh, that can happen. And there are times when you've been told stories over and over and over again that you just kind of think of them in that way. We just think sometimes, although I would say this one maybe not as much because you've heard so many people say, aha, that's not actually the way it is. But with uh, the three wise men coming to Jesus, it doesn't actually say there were three wise men. It says there were three gifts. But we often think just kind of naturally about three wise men. Um, There are a number of things like that. You know, I've I've heard people talk about uh, God changing Saul's name from Saul to Paul uh, after he became a, a Christian. Read through Acts. Uh, You won't find anything about God changing his name. Uh, You will find a passage that says, now Saul, who is also called Paul, and then you'll start seeing that Paul is used from that point forward. But it's likely that since he was a Hebrew and a Roman citizen, he might have had two different names his whole life. Uh, There there might not have been actually any sort of divine name change. Uh, But those are just the types of things that we kind of hear and we think and then we take with us. Um, Sometimes, however, those things can be somewhat um, negative towards certain people in the Bible. And that's one thing that I I want to talk about a little bit tonight. Uh, For example, um, I've heard people talk before about Mary Magdalene as being a, a prostitute. If you read everything about her, you can read some, some details about her life, but there's nothing in there that says that, uh, at least not clearly in any way. Um, but that's something that kind of tradition has passed on about her and about her former life. Um, but that's not actually something that the text says. Or even sometimes just the way we refer to the text. Uh, in John 8, there's the passage about Jesus and the adulterous woman. And uh, there is a woman, and she did commit adultery there, but 
Is the point of that passage that Jesus meets an adulterous woman? Or is perhaps the point of that passage uh, Jesus and the self-righteous hypocrites who are accusing other people while ignoring their own sins? That might be a better way to to describe it if we're going to actually make the point Jesus makes about the passage. But sometimes it's just easier to say Jesus and the adulterous woman. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about David's sin with Bathsheba, we can be tempted to take David's sin and make it Bathsheba's sin. Um, When we talk about David and Bathsheba, one of the questions that I think can come up is, well, was Bathsheba guilty also, or was it just David's sin? And I've heard a lot of preachers go through the text and interpret it in such a way that Bathsheba is not the only one sinner, but she kind of got the whole process started by seducing David, and that it was more of an affair than it was uh, a king taking something that's not his and forcing her to be with him. Um, And I I would say I don't think that's actually the way the text presents it. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba focusing on the innocence of Bathsheba, focusing on the way that I think the text is actually portraying the events. Um, You'll have a number of people who will refer to David's sin. David, God, Nathan, and the author himself. And in every one of those instances, none of them say a word about Bathsheba's sin. Uh, None of them say anything about Bathsheba having sinned in this whole thing. So to make a point about Bathsheba's sin is kind of us reading through it and adding uh, a certain slant to it that interestingly is not there. Uh, and so uh, we're going to read through it. I'll, I'll give you an example of one place where, where uh, I've heard that, and I know I've heard it in many sermons before, um, but here's a book uh, I read earlier this year. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, uh, and it talks about some of the assumptions that uh, we as Westerners have that we uh, kind of add to our, our uh, you know, we, we read the Bible through the glasses or through the lens of a Western worldview, and sometimes we'll get confused when we read things that are written from a distinctly different worldview, and we will shape the narrative to fit our Western worldview, and that, that does happen. I think it was a pretty interesting book, and there were a lot of things in there like that, um, but he talks about David and Bathsheba, And in that, I'm going to say, I think he gets it quite wrong. Um, And I think there are others who do a much better job approaching that subject. I'm going to read to you the paragraph uh, or two that that he discusses the sins of Bathsheba. And then we'll talk about assumptions that we can read into the text when it comes to talking about this. Um, This is from a book, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. He begins, women then and now don't bathe in places where they could be seen publicly. We might assume Bathsheba had been engaged in a Jewish uh, ritual bath, but the text never says or even suggests that she was Jewish. Her husband was a Hittite. All right, so just those first two sentences right there. Um, He starts off by saying, women then and now don't bathe in places where they could be seen publicly. Uh, So if a woman is doing that, the point he's going to make, it's intentional. But even that first sentence is wrong. Uh, There are many times where women, both then and now, you can find many examples of it, where they bathe in a place that's that's public. Um, They don't always remove all of their clothing in order to do that, but there are, like, throughout the ancient world and the modern world, public baths, uh, particularly in places where people don't have, uh, like, indoor baths or indoor plumbing and things like that. Uh, And sometimes they can find modest ways to wash themselves under their clothes, but it's an assumption to think that she was intentionally being seen, that women don't ever go bathe somewhere where they could be seen. 
Interestingly, it's an assumption that she was naked. Uh, the text doesn't say that either. Uh, so again, she, I'm, I'm not saying she wasn't, but, but there are certain things that we, are, that we can assume and put into the text that aren't actually written. Um, so he starts off by saying that, uh, that uh, the reason he says we could assume it's a Jewish ritual bath is because um, she is bathing. But if you look at 11, chapter 11, verse 4, kind of sounds like that. Um, passage says, uh, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then uh, some of the Bibles translate this next phrase a little differently, uh, but a lot of them will put it in par uh, parentheses, saying, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she uh, returned to her house. So the idea being the bath that she was taking, it was a cleansing bath from her impurity. And if you read like Leviticus 15, after the, the menstruation, there's a seven-day period, then you cleanse yourself, and uh, that there's, a, there's a process that women go through after that. One of the reasons that's an important detail is it because you let it, she, it lets you know she's not already pregnant. Uh, she's just had her uh, menstrual cycle, and uh, she has just gone through the, the cleansing of that. But one of the assumptions I think that you might could make from that is that even if she wasn't born an Israelite, which again, we don't know much about her nationality. We know her husband is a Hittite. Um, she may have, like Ruth, uh, been observing uh, Torah, been observing Israelite. I mean, she did live uh, there near the king's palace. But anyway, there's a lot of assumptions that goes into to a lot of these things that you kind of read it with your own slant to see it how, uh, how it makes most sense to you. But uh, here he goes on to say, Furthermore, we are unaware of any uh, ritual purification done at night. Since it is evening, remember David had been in bed, it is likely that it was dark, and therefore Bathsheba uh, had provided sufficient lighting, sufficient for bathing, and sufficient for being seen while bathing. We may assume Bathsheba was aware that her rooftop was visible from the palace, notably the king's balcony. In antiquity, people were cognizant of the proximity to the seat of power. Even today, White House offices are ranked by their distance from the Oval Office. We would be unlikely to believe a White House aide who said, I, I just stepped outside into the hallway to talk. I didn't realize the president was walking down this hallway every single day at this time. Likewise, we would be skeptical if Bathsheba asserted, oh, I didn't realize that, the king, uh, that that was the king's balcony. We think the story is told in a way to imply that she intended to be seen by the king and her plans worked. Um, so that's kind of a way that people have read it, that she was orchestrating this thing, thinking, all right, the king might not be able to sleep tonight. Uh, he's going to go to his bed, but then he's going to get up and he's going to walk to his balcony and I'm going to make sure that I'm doing my, uh, my cleansing uh, from my impurity there so that if he does do that, he can look down and see me. I'm going to make sure to light it just enough, not so that I can see myself bathing, but so that he can see me bathing. And then hopefully he'll like what he sees so much that he says to his officials, hey, go down there and get her and bring her up to me because I would like to have uh, uh, an affair. And you could read it that way. And, I, and I, again, I've, I've heard of that happening. Um, but I don't think that those are necessary assumptions. It may be that she was bathing because it was at her time to bathe. And it may be that she had lights on, which it doesn't even say, but because it was dark. And it may be that she was at her home. And she's not expecting people to go out and try to, to peer at her while she's doing that. We would, in our world, if uh, a window was open and you could see into somebody's bathroom, 
you would assume the right thing to do is, oh, turn their, your head. Don't assume that they are trying to entice you in to, to look at them. And if you're caught looking at them, that makes you a bad person. Uh, it doesn't make them the bad person. Uh, and, and so I think, uh, I think you have to kind of slant some of these details in order to make it to where she is the one who is to blame. None of the blame as the chapter goes on ends up being leveled against her. So all of these things that he brings up, She's trying to be seen. She's trying to time it out. She's trying to make sure the lighting is there so she could be all of this stuff. None of uh, the prophet Nathan doesn't come up and say that you both have worked together to make sure that this iniquity was done. Or he doesn't say, he doesn't ask the questions. Why is she bathing where she could be seen at nighttime? Those are questions that we're reading into it, but none of, like, the author of the text doesn't say that. Uh, none of the people or the individuals or the characters in the text say that, and God doesn't say that. And so we should be careful assigning blame where the Bible does not assign blame. Um, but uh, a better uh, article that, that you can read on it, uh, there's one by Carmen Imes. It's called Blame David, Not Bathsheba the Nathan prophet did, or the prophet Nathan did. Um, that's an article you could read that'll discuss some of these things, and it might be kind of uh, interesting. But just thinking about some of the assumptions that uh, are sometimes made about the text, um, one is that uh, Bathsheba being on a rooftop. Uh, again, that's, that's not really written in there. Uh, two, it doesn't say that she was even at home. Uh, you know, she may have been somewhere publicly bathing that he could see from, uh, from the rooftop. I mean, we, again, it's it doesn't state either way exactly where she was. Um, it doesn't state that she was naked. Now, granted, uh, that maybe she was, but we're not told exactly. We're just told that he saw her bathing. Uh, chapter 11 and verse 4 indicates, I think, that uh, she was doing it for the purpose of uh, purity ritualistic cleansing uh, from her impurity, which might mean that she actually does seem to take uh, some of the teachings of Moses seriously. Uh, and so she might not just be uh, a reckless woman or uh, an impious woman, um, but she was actually trying to, uh, to take her spiritual life seriously. Her only words in the whole text are, I'm pregnant, uh, and she sends those as a message uh, to the king. So it's not like we have her saying anything about a yes or a no or any discussion of, of consent really on her part other than the king sent and took her. Um, <clears throat> She, uh, if we uh, read through it, let's start in chapter 11 and verse 1 and kind of read through some of the things that we've just been talking about uh, and see kind of where the, where the text goes with the story. So chapter 11 and verse 1, uh, then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Uh, now, when evening came, David arose from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And they said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And uh, she, beca uh, she came, to and when she came to him, uh, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from the uncleanness, or uh, now that she had been purifying herself from the uncleanness, she went to her house. Um, one thing that's interesting in verse four there is it says David sent messengers and they took her. Um, 
again, that's not really written as a request uh, that, uh, you know, the king requests, you can say yes or no, uh, your presence at his palace later this evening. Uh, it says they went and they took her. Uh, that word, if you look it up, it's, I mean, it's used many, many times, and generally it means something like take. That's why it's uh, translated that way here. But there are contexts where it's translated as seize. Um, and so it could be something like taking someone against their will. Um, but what you have here is they go, and the king sends officials to a woman's house who's there alone. Uh, her, father is, and, uh, her father and her husband both seem to be in the military. They're both out of this battle, and the king's officials come, and they take her to the king. Um, verse 5, after uh, she returns home, it says, The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So David now has to figure out exactly the, the right way to handle this situation um, because, well, even if no one really other than his officials knows his interactions here, when Uriah comes home and she finds that she's pregnant, uh, there are going to be questions asked. If she's silent and says nothing about the king, she's still probably going to be stoned. The odds of her being silent and saying nothing about the king are probably unlikely. Uh, and so what you would have here is a king overstepping his uh, authority in, in a drastic way. A king who's supposed to be a king of Israel, who's, I mean, when you think about the laws of Israel, you think about even the Ten Commandments, don't covet your neighbor's wife. You can't come up with a more like clear-cut violation of that than this right here. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. He very specifically did those exact things. Uh, so you, you are having David, what could become knowledge to all people, uh, acting in such a way that demonstrates that he is entirely unfit to be the king of Israel, to be the king of the people of God and of, of Israel who received Torah and who received the Ten Commandments. So verse 6, this is what David thinks to do. So David sent to Joab. Um, Joab is the leader of his army who basically he sent out to do his job for him. Remember, David is a king, and in chapter 11 and verse 1, it says it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab, and then David stayed home. Uh, so you have the idea there that the kings are going and leading their armies, but David decides to stay home, and he sends Joab in his place to lead the army for him instead uh, so that he can be home. While he's at home, uh, you have all of the women whose husbands are gone at battle are now home alone, and, and he sees one, and he takes advantage. Um, in verse 8, or sorry, verse 7, uh, when Uriah came to him after David sent to, to have him come, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and um, a present from the king was sent over after him. But Uriah slept on the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his own house. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go to his own house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your own house? And Uriah said to David, The Ark of the Covenant and Judah are staying uh, in temporary shelters or tents. Uh, and my lord Joab and the servants of the lord of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. And so he responds with tremendous integrity, saying, look, the Ark of the Covenant, 
my fellow soldiers, Joab, all the leaders of the mill, they're not at home, like, enjoying life. By the way, David is. Uh, they are out in open fields, and they're sleeping in tents. I'm not going to go home to my wife and, and, you know, eat a good meal and drink and all that. Like, that's, that's, that would be uh, unfit for someone in my position to do that. One thing that's kind of interesting is um, in the book of 1 Samuel, you see a passage where this same type of thing, 1 Samuel 21, um, this is where David, uh, Ahimelech is the priest, and David um, and some men are in need of food, and they end up uh, going to where the priest is, and they need some, some food, and he says, basically, we don't have any common bread here. All we have is uh, the holy bread, like the, the bread of presence, and you're not supposed to give that to, to just anyone to eat, but since they were hungry, he ends up doing that, but one of the questions that is asked beforehand is um, in chapter 21 and verse 4, it says, the priest answered David and said to him, there is no ordinary bread on hand. There is only the consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I uh, set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, uh, though, it were, um, though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? Uh, the implication there is the men haven't been with women. We've been out uh, on campaign and we've been out on a journey and David uh, and his army didn't go engage in sexual relations and things like that while they were out. Uh, and so just because Uriah gets the chance to come back, he's still living by that code of not having sexual relations while on campaign and while, uh, while doing his duty. And so uh, he refuses to go into his wife, and uh, he sleeps instead with all the other servants of the king. So then David, for attempt number two, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 11, David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So just, just the contrast of these two men at this point is, is unbelievable. You have one man who went out with the military, the other one who stayed home at leisure. One who uh, is not going to sleep even with his own wife, who he has every right to sleep with, because of his commitment to the military. The other, who he's not only going to sleep with his own wives, presumably, uh, he's going to take another wife that's not his own wife uh, and sleep with her. Uriah demonstrates more integrity while drunk than David does while sober when it comes to the way that they are uh, acting and the way that they are viewing their responsibility towards others. David is not being pictured in a positive light at all in this, in this uh, chapter. Now, verse 14 says, Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it uh, by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was that Joab kept watch on the city, and that, uh, that he put Uriah in place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Notice, not only does Uriah die, but it also mentions some of David's servants fell also. David doesn't just kill one guy to steal his wife. 
he puts the like he puts the army in a dangerous situation and a lot of them end up dying just so that David can clear his name and make sure that one of them at least is Uriah so that once Uriah is dead, then I can steal his wife uh, for myself. And so David's actions don't only lead to the death of one person. They lead to the death of of quite a few. Um, So once that happens, then verse 18, Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. Now what's going to be interesting is as he sends this messenger back to David, he tells him, that we ended up uh, chasing them close to the city. We got close to the city walls. They ended up using their archers. Um, This would be like a military mistake uh, that you should have been able to learn from from the book of Judges. Uh, In the book of Judges, uh, there was someone who ended up dying uh, because a woman dropped a millstone from from, uh, the top of a a tower and it landed on him. And 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 as as he was dying, uh, he turns to the person next to him and says, don't let word get out that a woman killed me, uh, which, which is just kind of a funny uh, way to die. But anyway, uh, that's how, basically that story gets brought up right here. Um, and uh, what Joab says to tell David, if David ends up getting upset about what he's done, be sure and tell him that Uriah died also. So that like that news will cheer him up from the devastating news of the others in the military uh, who have died. And so uh, they tell, um, he goes and he reports in verse 24, he's bringing the report to David. He says, moreover, the archers shot at your servants uh, from the wall. uh, So some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Right, that's the key line that David has been waiting for. And then David says in verse 25, and it's sickening his response. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. So I go tell Joab, don't let this thing bother you. Uh, don't, don't get upset about this. For the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against uh, the city stronger and overthrow it. And so he encouraged him. Um, he says, look, people die in battle sometimes. Don't get bothered by this. This isn't that bad of a thing. And just the way that David is so cavalier with the lives of the people he's supposed to be leading and ruling is uh, it's, it's devastating to see how far David has fallen as this sin is spiraling out of control. Uh, then verse 26, thinking about Bathsheba again. Now when the wife of Uriah, now by the way, that's also an interesting do- note about the way this is written. She's called Bathsheba in like the first verse. And pretty much every time after that, she's referred to as the wife of Uriah. Um, That's intentional. That is so, as you read it, you will constantly be reminded this is not just a a female that David has rights to. This is a female who is already married to someone else. The wife of Uriah. Verse 26, now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned and lamented for her husband. And when uh, her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the evil thing that David, uh, but the thing that David, sorry, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice uh, that phrase right there to close the chapter. It doesn't say, but the thing they had done was evil in the sight of the Lord, or it doesn't, it, even in this, she's mourning for her husband who was taken from her and killed. I mean, remember, she, she not only <laughs> one day while bathing ends up having 
officers arrive at her house and take her to the king, and then she reports to the king what, what has happened, that she's now pregnant, she then has her husband taken and put into battle and die and killed. And now she's mourning that, and as soon as she's done mourning that, she's then taken back to go be the wife of the king. And this whole, this whole episode is denying her humanity and her side of the story and her uh, rights as, as a person and as an Israelite. The whole thing is about one person with power seizing pleasure and opportunity from someone who had none. I mean, she, she was someone who in Israel who should have been protected. He, he should have cared and looked after his neighbor's wife, not collected his neighbor's wife and made her his own. And, and so in this, it's tragic to me to think you have Bathsheba who is taken by the king. She loses her husband as he's killed. She's eventually going to lose a child. And then we read the story. And even though no one in the Bible condemns her for it, we will say, but she set the whole thing up. Um, to me, that, uh, that just doesn't sit well with the way the text is actually reading and uh, who should be condemned as we read through the passage. Um, Nathan, I don't think, would, uh, would, would think that way either. When you get to chapter 12, Nathan the prophet's introduced, and he tells a story about what David has done. Now, in this story, we talked about it this morning, uh, he describes two men in the city, one who's rich and has everything. That person represents David. The other guy is poor and has nothing except one ewe lamb. That represents Uriah. The lamb is who represents Bathsheba. To say that Bathsheba and David were working together in the sin, or that they both were, is to say that the lamb was guilty of, of being taken by, like, the lamb is innocent in the story. Uh, the lamb is taken by the rich, powerful guy and killed. Uh, to think that, to read that parable and then walk away thinking, that poor, poor guy, and man, I can't believe that the rich guy and the lamb would conspire together to do that, is again, it's a misreading of, uh, of what's actually happening. Nathan presents Bathsheba in the story as the innocent pawn who is uh, stolen by one person uh, and the other person is left with, with nothing or in the literal sense, the other person is killed. Um, so then in verse five, then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution of the lamb fourfold because he, uh, this thing that, uh, that he has done and he had no compassion. That's an interesting phrase. He had no compassion. There are a number of verbal connections between this account here in First Sam or Second Samuel eleven and twelve and Psalm fifty-one. But if you'll remember how Psalm fifty-one begins, according, uh, be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. He knows that as this story goes along. God has something that he has not been having. Uh, David acted with no compassion, no compassion for Bathsheba, and certainly no compassion for Uriah, her husband. And yet, in order for him to have any hope of forgiveness, God's going to have to have compassion on the compassionless. Uh, God's going to have to have grace and kindness towards the one who exercised no grace and kindness and compassion. So David is saying the man had no compassion, so he should be punished. And Nathan in uh, verse 7 
says to David, you are that man. You are the man. Uh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. He says, if, if, you had, if that had been too little, uh, I would have added to you many more things like this. Like God is saying, I gave you everything, more than you ever could have deserved. And if you had asked for more, you could have had more. God was overwhelmingly faithful in his blessings that he showered upon David. And yet David began to think it's not enough. David wanted more and more and more. And so... Uh, as a result of this, in uh, verse 10, you see one thing that's, that's promised. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Um, he says the sword will never depart from your house. And if you remember, if you keep reading the story of David, he's actually not able to build the temple. Uh, and one of them is because of the, the bloodthirstiness that, uh, that described his reign. But if you actually look at his house from this point forward, the very next chapter, you're going to have a story where Tamar, uh, David's daughter, is going to be taken advantage of and raped by his son, uh, Amnon. And that is going to lead to a series of events that leads to Absalom uh, um, trying to uh, just act in justice in that situation. Then he has to flee, uh, but then uh, he ends up coming back and he ends up usurping the kingdom from his father, David, and eventually Joab's going to come along and kill Absalom, but David's going to have a daughter who is raped, a son who is murdered by another son, and then that son's ultimately going to, and what you're going to see is his whole household becomes a mess, and that's after losing the infant child that he has with Bathsheba. Like, David's life and his reign and his family like, turn into a mess because the way that he acted towards Uriah, his sons are going to act towards uh, him and towards his daughter. And, and you'll see that same type of selfishness and lust take over his family and it will, it will destroy it. And so that is one of the, um, the uh, consequences that seems to follow from this point forward. Verse 12 says, indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And then verse 13, and I think this is, this is where Psalm 51 is coming from. Uh, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice David doesn't qualify that. David doesn't uh, make any excuses about that. He doesn't add anyone to that. He doesn't say we have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't. At this moment, like, if you listen to a public apology that uh, someone famous who gets caught in some act gives, uh, you will often have an apology and then the very lengthy explanation of why what I did actually makes sense and isn't as bad as you think, but I am still sorry about it. Uh, that, that tends to be our, our standard method of giving an apology. It's like, I want to look good at the end of this apology. And so I have to try to apologize in such a way that people are like, oh, I get it. Okay. Um, you don't really get that from David right here. And in Psalm 51, you don't get that at all. He throws himself upon the mercy of God, making no excuses for himself, uh, not trying to justify or sweep away or explain away his sin. He accepts accountability, responsibility. He accepts the punishment that's going to come from it. 
and he uh, throws himself upon the mercy of God. And all you get in uh, chapter 12 is that phrase, I have sinned against the Lord. When you read Psalm 51 with it, uh, you can see a lot more that, that's going along with that. But then it says, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, and this is uh, the, the part that is, uh, it's going to be really troublesome, is the child that Bathsheba has ultimately does die. Uh, David mourns and fasts, um, but the child does not survive. The child gets a, a sickness, and the child does die. David is comforted only by the thought that while the child will never return to him, he will be able to return to that child. He then comforts Bathsheba, uh, who not only has had her life turned completely upside down, has been taken from her home and added to the king's harem. Remember, he already has a number of other wives. Uh, and she has had her husband killed, and she has had her, her child now die. Um, her life has become a mess because of all of this. Um, she does end up uh, becoming pregnant again, and in verse 24, chapter uh, 12 and verse 24, it mentions that she gives birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Uh, now the Lord loved him. She does have a son who the Lord loves, and she does become the mother of a king, uh, but you read through the whole thing, and you can see David blame himself for his sin. You can see that the Lord is angered with David because of sin. You can see the writer of the book says that it was David's evil. You can see Nathan presents David as evil and the, the ewe lamb as an innocent character in the whole thing. So I would suggest that as we talk about this story, we try to follow suit and not try to read ways where Bathsheba is the one who started the whole thing or is actually guilty in it. She's a woman who got taken advantage of by a power-hungry king, by a king who refused to be told no, and a king who thought that he could, he could take whatever he wanted, even if it was somebody else's wife. David is, the, David is who we should focus on as we talk about the sin of this passage, because that's certainly the, the way that the Bible tells it. You can read through, and just thinking about David's sins, uh, he refused to go to war uh, or to, to go with the military. He stayed at home. He lusted. He took his neighbor's wife. Um, he lied and deceived. He got Uriah drunk. He uh, had Uriah killed along with a number of other servants of his in order to conceal and to cover up uh, his own sin. He uh, told Joab not to be displeased by this uh, or to think of it evil as though he becomes the one who is in charge of what's really right and what's really wrong. This, this type of thing happens, you know, just don't worry about it. Uh, he acted like so many other kings and so many other kingdoms, but he acted in a way that was never supposed to describe or uh, befit the king of Israel. I mean, if you remember, uh, if you remember Abraham married to, to Sarah um, in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 20, uh, with the king of, of Egypt, we had with Pharaoh, and then with uh, Abimelech, king of Gerar, and then also with his son, Jacob. There's a situation where they enter into a strange city, and they're all afraid that their beautiful wives are going to be stolen by the king and added to the king's collection of wives. Um, they think that way because that's the type of thing that kings do. And David and any king of Israel was never supposed to act like that. And yet David let the fact that he was king cloud his judgment and fool him into thinking that he was actually the one in charge. Um, 
we need to be careful that as we have comfort in life and as we have uh, perhaps some level of authority or power over our lives, some autonomy in the way that we live, we don't make the mistake of thinking that we are actually the ones who are in charge, but that we never forget that there is a God who rules all, who is over us, who is in charge, and who we need to submit, listen to, and uh, obey. And uh, that's the mistake that David made, and it made a mess out of his life, and there were many innocent sufferers as a result, whether it's Uriah, whether it's his son, whether it's Bathsheba, whether it's his family from that point forward, you end up seeing a tremendous amount of misery because of the idea that you could rule your own life in any way that you please, satisfying your own lusts, and it doesn't harm anyone else. Well, it clearly does. Uh, so as you go on from this point, remember to be submissive to the Lord. Remember to let him be the ruler of your life and to obey him and all of his desires. Things will go a whole lot better than this type of mess that we just read through. Uh, if there's anyone here tonight who would uh, like the prayers of the church or would like to become a Christian, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing. <laughs>